This is the Voluntarist Haven Podcast, your weekly source of libertarianism. To begin today's episode, we will begin our introductions as the first formal episode of the Voluntarist Haven with our special guests, Spectrify and Prophet Hayek. The show from here on out will be hosted by myself, Baker, and Brent. If you guys would like to introduce yourselves, go ahead. Uh, so my name is Baker. Uh, I have a few, uh, few articles on the Voluntarist Haven blog. I work in tax law. Um, unfortunately, I'm only an intern. I don't have power of attorney. Uh, I've got a couple articles coming out on the Mises Wire. They're in the queue at the moment. Uh, and from there, I think, Brent, you go ahead and introduce yourself. Uh, my name is Brent. I am one of the co-hosts here on the Voluntarist Haven uh, podcast. And I do have um, just one article right now, a few more I'm coming out with soon. But that one is a Misesian method of theory and history. And I will be editing uh, Craig's and Prophet Hayek's book, The Rehabilitation of the Ricardo Effect. Yeah, I'm Prophet Hayek, uh, working in conjunction with Craig on the rehabilitation of the uh, Ricardo Effect at the moment. And I have a few minor articles out there on Medium, nothing too special, but I mainly do economics as a hobby at the moment. Yeah, I'm Spectrify. I just, uh, I write papers. Like, I wrote one on the calculation problem. Uh, with with Mustafa and Eric, uh, just looking at the solutions proposed, uh, especially the recent ones, since there's an, a lot of literature regarding it, like um, like Cockshot's paper in 2010 regarding Kantorovich and in-kind calculation, uh, and, as well as the older solutions such as linear programming. That's my main work at the moment, but uh, I'm going to start in an essay regarding capital-based macroeconomics. And the implications they have in the uh, Austrian business cycle theory. All right, I'm Ben or Prax Ben, and uh, I work in private security and I focus on uh, presenting anarchy, Austrian economics, and capitalism in general in simplistic ways to uh, to young people in order to give them uh, generally better views on politics. So today we'll be focusing on uh, the history of Austrian economics and what the future has in store for our school and some nonsense opinions that have become popular around the Austrian school. In particular, the opinion that all the relevant contributions Austrian economics has made out of the marginal revolution have been incorporated into the economic orthodoxy, that is, neoclassicalism. The starting point of our discussion should then be just that. The beginnings of the marginal revolution is recognized by nearly every Austrian that Karl Menger is the founder of the Austrian school by his foundational work, Principles of Economics, published in 1871. In this book, Menger develops many foundational principles, such as the subjective theory of value, diminishing marginal utility, derived demand, and so on. Menger was inspired by the real world markets, particularly how the process of price formation comes about. He's seen the market not as some abstract entity, but rather as the totality of human interactions and cooperation that exists in the real world. Thus, it's easy to see how not only Austrian economics is at its core a theory of human action, but also that it is a theory for real people making their own free decisions over their own lives. The best way in which marginalism, has, as it's been called, can be characterized is by that subjectivism and constantly changing real world conditions. Unlike the classicals before Menger, Menger did not, see, he did not view the market as some massive glump of otherworldly entities. Rather, Menger viewed the market as real human beings interacting to better their own lives with a vast amount of different goods. This also implies that men working in the market have various different needs and wants. The market in Menger's view is not as it was for the classicals, and this is what was so revolutionary about Menger's work. It brought economics back to reality. It understood the market in terms of the real world not abstract equations, statistics, or comparative equilibrium analysis. 
if you guys have any comments on that, I'd love to hear them. Throughout the night, we're we're gonna we're gonna refer back a lot to Manger and his his uh, his first book, Principles of Economics. And I don't think we can overstate um, the importance of this work. Uh, he was one of three that kind of came up with this idea of uh, subjective value in relation to prices. Um, when he released the book, it wasn't supposed to uh, like smash, you know, the 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 historical school of the time. Uh, Manger himself was very fond of many of the many of the heads of the historical school. He wanted to be a he wanted to kind of work with them to, uh, I guess, revitalize the uh, the science of economics. Um, but when he was turned away from them, and when he was viewed as a uh, an economic reject, that's when uh, he was invited to Vienna and started his uh, Austrian school. Yeah, definitely. Um, the The relation between Menger and the historical school at the time was also a great contribution of the Austrian school. Uh, the rejection of historicism and the uh, rejection that there could be no economic laws in, in the field of history that could be regular or that we can determine various laws that could be independent of time and place and could be more than just relative uh, was something that was abstract and away from classical economics because of the German historical school, which was prominent at Menger's time. So when Menger came in and proposited these ideas as laws like the diminishing marginal utility, that when goods get added to a stock, they decrease in value, that sort of irregular uh, economic law that was coming in that place was totally contrary to, to the economic orthodoxy. They totally believed that everything was wholly relative to the situation and there was no regularity in economic laws at all. Brent, you got anything? I guess uh, something that does bother me on the regular is just with, especially in accordance to uh, the subjective theory of value is just the, just completely hyper-specific statement that value is subjective and that is all that the theory is. That really bugs me. I'm sure we're going to go into that later, but that is something that definitely bothers me. Um, especially, I did see um, someone on, on social media say that the labor theory of value and the subjective theory of value are compatible, which might have been one of the worst things I've ever heard. Yeah, this is more or less of kind of a history of the development of the Austrian school, but it's just something I wanted to bring up and I think it's a good segue to kind of start talking about um, going in depth in these concepts that we are mentioning. I think just getting away from Menger and Bombovrik, especially his works on just capital and interest. Um, and I, I guess in regards to Marx as well, uh, and the classical economist's view on interest, um, la uh, rent with land, because that's, Ricardo has this whole thing. I know Lewin has uh, a lecture regarding his distaste for Ricardo's theory of rent. Uh, he hates that it's like taught so widely because he thinks that Ricardo's view on rent um, is one of the things that um, that he messes up on. Uh, one of the two things he messes up on. But essentially, um, Bombavrk and I guess expanding on that, Frank Fetter with his um, works concerning uh, rent and wages. Um, I think those differ from the classical economists strongly. Uh, and there's obviously the blowing up of the exploitation theory of interest from Bombofrik and capital and interest, which I'm sure you're familiar with, Craig. All right, yeah. So we're getting we're getting into Bombofrik and uh, uh, kind of ex like his expose on capital, his two-volume uh, series on capital. So to set the stage a little bit, uh, 
Menger releases his Principles of Economics in 71. He was alone. Uh, eventually, he gets a spot at the University of Vienna. Two, uh, two intellectuals come and join him who were never actually students of Menger, and that was uh, Wieser and Bombavirk. Uh, they took chairs at the University of Vienna's economics department, and from there, uh, they taught a lot of you know, uh, historically notable figures. Um, I'm trying to think. Uh, uh, Wieser taught Mises, and I'm pretty sure uh, Hayek, for, before Hayek, um, before Hayek was taught by Mises in his, uh, oh, I forgot, uh, Mises had a, uh, uh, like a private lecture series that he would give. Um, Craig, do you want to pick up with, with that? Yeah, um, I, I thought it was, uh, it was Bombawark who taught Mises, was I, was I mistaken in thinking that? No, so he was at the University of Vienna and he was taught by both, but I'm, I think that his dissertation advisor was Mises, I could be wrong. Oh, okay. I, I thought his primary influence um, was was through Bombawar because uh, I I know his cycle theory and um, and a lot of that was very influenced by Bombawar's capital theory. But then again, that could be said for almost anyone in the Austrian school. But um, yeah, I, going capital. back to Ricardo, uh, I I don't know a lot about Ricardo. Is not really by expertise. But one thing that I I do like to contribute in my uh, cycle theory is is his theory of industrial fluctuations uh, regarding like gold imports and exports. I think uh, that could be something that the Austrian school needs to explore more. Can I just uh, add in? Uh, Bavirk was uh, Mises's doctoral advisor at the time, so. Just, just clear that one up. I think uh, Baker's thing with uh, what's it called? Mises giving those private lectures. Were those the one um in NYU? Because I think Rothbard talked about them in the in the preface for. Well, I don't I don't know if Rothbard wrote it, but it was in the preface of Man, Economy, and State, where Rothbard was at one of those lectures given by Mises, and he was looking at human action and realized that Mises not um he, he like he sort of assumed that you had like knowledge regarding economics. Um, and Rothbard wanted to take it all the way back, uh, step by step, and then you have this whole thing with like monopoly theory and how he decided that Mises's view on it was incorrect. And that's that's so a whole other thing. But. The uh, I think lecture lecture series was a poor choice of words on my part. Uh, he gave like uh, he gave courses. Okay, so when Mises was teaching at Vienna, he had a small teaching spot at Vienna, but he also worked at the Vienna Chambers of, Chamber of Commerce. Uh, and that's where he taught Hayek. That's where him and Hayek became acquaintances. Um, and he taught Hayek and I think one other guy, uh, he was involved in the capital controversies. Uh, you know, I can't remember his name off the top of my head. Um, the, the lecture series that he gave at NYU is another story. I think we'll get to that later but they were very con uh, very controversial but very very influential uh, you know Hazlitt attended them even though Hazlitt was already uh, a big name in economics you know uh, in his own right uh, but no this was a different lecture series yeah the capital controversy oh god that I, I don't know if we're going to touch on that now but 
Uh, yeah, well, we'll I guess get I'll... to that later. We should just try and stick to the, uh, the the very basics of the basics, the fundamentals of the Austrian school. Go back mm-hmm. to Mendel's principles of economics and talk about the deviations from the classicals that existed, particularly in capital theory, because I think that will be one uh, one thing that will be continually emphasized over this podcast in the future is capital theory, because the Austrians have a very unique theory of capital and that it's compromised heavily of subjectivism. Uh, we define capital not according to its physical compositions or anything of the such, rather we define capital according to its intended use by capital owners. And that's one thing that, uh, that particularly when it comes to people who say that uh, the Austrian contributions are embedded in neoclassical orthodoxy, I-, I think they completely miss. They don't understand our capital theory because our capital theory is completely absent of any economic orthodoxy. And as well as even the most fundamentals of uh, Menger's contributions, which are in regards to uh, the diminishing marginal utility, when it comes to increasing econometrics and things like this, Mises also talks about this in the uh, theory of money and credit, I believe uh, it's the second chapter, that um, these sort of uh, econometrics that continue to develop must intrinsically take out the role of diminishing marginal utility. Uh, as to quantify diminishing marginal utility is something that's not possible. You can't quantify how much value is lost due to uh, the foregone end that someone cannot achieve due to the increasing stocks. The, the first essence of the stock is to go to the most uh, the most desired ends, and then increasing can only go to later desired ends or less desired ends. So with that, and you cannot, you cannot tell how much people are foregoing or how much uh, in cardinal terms people are uh, gaining from getting those most desired ends and the less desired ends. So the the level of econometrics must fundamentally take out the role of diminishing marginal utility. And that's not even talking about the, the, the homogeneous factors in neoclassical orthodoxy and capital theory. Yeah, I think just related to capital theory as well is the theory of interest. This is just... Um... And even now, I guess that'd still be considered an internal Austrian debate because Murphy has his contentious with the pure time preference theory. Uh, Bombaverk, he rejected the pure time preference theory. Or I, don't, I, I think if he was around today, I think he would have accepted the pure time preference theory. But, um, but alas, in his, in, his, uh, in his, I think this is the final volume of Capital and Interest. I could be mistaken on that. But he formulates his own thing uh, based off of time preference and marginal productivity of capital. So he has, his, there's, he sort of falls victim to what he was criticizing throughout those, um, his magnum opus, I guess. Uh, but I think that the Austrians' view on interest is definitely unique. Or I guess, well, the Austrians don't really have a view on interest, but I guess uh, the pure time preference theory of interest, which is an Austrian theory, will, is it differs radically from the orthodox schools like um the the classical economists and the neoclassical economists i'm not sure if we're getting to them yet but yeah there there is some variety in austrian uh, austrian theories of interest but even in murphy's uh his dissertation he still recognizes throughout it that time is important and that uh interest rates to a certain extent uh reflect people's um uh, reflect people's time preference. So even though there are definitely some very strong contentions, Austrians as a whole completely differ in almost every way uh, to the uh, to the typical view of interest rates. Yeah, one of the fundamental things that should reflect this is just the complete separation in the evenly rotating economy or final state of rest. It's 
uh, the the conception of the the orthodoxy would have to be that, and the in the, the evenly rotating economy that there would be no interest. There, but people in the evenly rotating economy, according to the Austrians, would still have interest because they still prefer present goods over future goods. And that distinction alone, like in an equilibrium analysis or the evenly evenly rotating economy, that there would be no interest, contrary to there would be the same level of interest that would exist in the market economy as a sharp distinction to me. And I think that should be emphasized more. I completely agree. Yeah. Uh, for those watching who don't know, the evenly rotating, uh, even, evenly rotating economy is a thought experiment. Uh, it's kind of like, uh, if you're familiar with classical econ or neoclassical economics, it's kind of like, a, a, just like an equilibrium thought experiment where there's perfect knowledge of the future. Uh, yeah. So well, we've talked about Manger. We've talked a little bit about Visor. Uh, and I was mistaken earlier. Uh, I made sure that I looked it up on my phone. Weiser was Hayek's dissertation advisor, which makes sense because if you look at uh, Bombavirk's political views, he was definitely less interventionist than than Weiser was. However, you say it, I don't care. He's German uh, <laughs> or Austrian, whatever. Uh, you can definitely tell in Hayek's work and in Mises's work who was taught by you know, more laissez-faire liberal, a more laissez-faire liberal and who was taught by a more interventionist type. Uh, Visser was for progressive income tax. Hayek held that same view for, you know, quite a while after, uh, after his, you know, after he went through his schooling. Um, so then I'm trying to think, time-wise, we're about, you know, we're almost the 1920s. So should we go ahead and talk about uh, Hayek, Hayek's trip to London? Um, I think, first of all, we should go into... Uh... The, more specifically into bomba work because um what what happened with bomba work and we've not touched on this is the the average period of production which is quite possibly the most controversial idea in all of economics which is crazy considering it's just a measurement of production periods but it's so controversial that it managed to start up at least three capital controversies on its own and yeah. thinking of that is is crazy because we're thinking in terms of so many academics over so many years and then this one measurement of production managed to start up so much controversy that almost the entire Austrian theory of capital was abandoned after it, even though it's not contingent on it in the slightest. But um, when it comes to it, there is certainly solutions to the average period of production. And, um, and Bumblework's idea that production should be aggregated toward an average in the first place was, was a heavy mistake. There's no doubt about that. Uh, there should be no aggregation in capital theory. That, that's one point that we, we need to stick to as Austrians as we continually emphasize its capital's market value and we emphasize the subjectivism involved in capital theory. To aggregate such productive structures is to totally disregard the Austrian theory of capital itself and disregard Menger's contributions to capital theory. But, so when it comes to the, the average period of production, we should reduce it merely to a period of production and we should define it according to its increasing capital values to the various stages of production and its intended use through entrepreneurial plans. We shouldn't uh, define it according to its physical production or anything like that. We should define it from the moment it was intended toward a, very, a, a certain production process. And this goes into consumer durables as well, which I guess we'll talk about later and uh, Garrison's models and time and money of the Hayekian triangles. And we can go into all this stuff later, but for now, it, it should suffice to say that uh, the average period of production idea was a vital flaw in Austrian capital theory that should totally be abandoned to a a basic period of production idea in modern Austrian capital theory. If we're on capital theory, do you want to 
talk about the the major controversies uh concerning that or w- do you want to like talk about just some contributions to Austrian economics like before because 1920 I think that's the period we're around now we could talk about the uh, uh Hayek's trip to London I think that's what Baker was talking about earlier yeah. or the uh, or the pamphlet that that started everything uh but whatever you guys want to move on to yeah, we could we could do Hayek and Caldor. The, the thing is though, I, I don't know if we want to get into the Ricardo effect so early or we want to stay baseline for the for the moment, but um have the Hayek and the Hayek Caldor Wilson Samuelson sort of fiasco that occurred at LSE was uh was mostly to do um with Caldor's switch uh, between the Hayekian to the post-Keynesian, I guess, Caldor. I, I don't really know what you'd classify Caldor as, but uh Hayek, I'm pretty sure Hayek described Caldor uh, originally when he uh, interacted with him at LSE was um, was an exceptional student. I'm pretty sure uh, that that was what Hayek originally dubbed Caldor as. And um, when Caldor changed his views from the Hayekian, uh, which he wrote like three exceptional papers according to Hayek under, um, and to that sort of Keynesian view. It was clear there was still Hayekian elements in Caldor's thinking, but um, he just he gradually shifted that away, and this created like a major conflict. And I think it was uh, I think there was a conflict between the tenures between uh, or getting tenure between Samuelson, uh, Hayek, and Caldor. And I'm pretty sure Caldor. Um, I think it might be it was either Caldor or Hayek that had their uh, their lecture rates stripping. Um, I'm I'm not hundred percent sure. I'd need to check that again, but. Um, I'm pretty sure that uh, Caldor had his lecture rights strip and, and he took, after he took that break from LSE, um, that, that really was when things started picking up uh, and that, that caused the major conflicts that would eventually occur in Cambridge and, um, and that sort of thing, which I also cover in my, my new com- my come book, uh, Rehabilitation of the Ricardo Effect. I, play, I apply um, Michael Hoffman, I apply his um, analysis uh, to Caldor's criticisms, and um, I talk on I talk on Wilson and all these types of things. But um, as it comes to it with the LSE stuff, Hayek shift from Hayekian to this post-Keynesian, uh, and then the later Ricardo effect controversies that happened. That was the fundamental cause of it was because Hayek, uh, or sorry, Caldor was a Hayekian to begin with. I don't think the I don't think there would have been such conflict between Samuelson Hayek and Caldor. Uh, if Caldor was never a Hayekian to begin with. I think I agree more. So uh, in the early 20s at the London School of Economics, there was a raging debate. You know, half of them were Hayekians, and it, it was going really well for the, for the Hayekians. Uh, Hayek gave lectures frequently in his kind of broken English. He got criticized for that quite a bit. And I think one, one reason uh, specifically for Caldor's switch was uh, at, the, at that time, Hayek had two books, um, so one was a theory or money and trade cycles. I think that's correct. And then prices and production. Prices and production was actually the second book. And theory of money and the trade cycle was the first book, but it hadn't, the first book hadn't been translated into English yet. It was still uh, German. And so people would, uh, so a lot of the people at London School of Economics would try to poke these holes in, into, into um, Hayek's, uh, Hayek's works because they didn't have that foundation to go off of. All they had was a few lectures kind of setting the stage for prices and production. Uh, and I, I think that's one 
Brent, you got something? Oh, I was just going to kind of interject. Are you referring to monetary theory in the trade cycle? Yeah, yeah. monetary theory. Okay. That's right. Yeah, that, that was the that was the first book that uh, Kaldor translated for Hayek, uh, and I believe he dubbed it um, as a as a very good translation. But as he translated prices and production to English, uh, I believe uh, Hayek was not so fond of his translations of prices and production. Yeah, I think on Kaldor, um, his uh, I was reading just some excerpts from uh, one of his compiled works because I I found it online, but. He has most of his work, I think, was actually more geared towards the neoclassical school than the Austrian. And uh, I, I don't I don't think because uh, he, he has he has work regarding Austrian economics and the Hayekian school uh, specifically. But I think that his work on neoclassical economics, since we're going to be contrasting them with the Austrian school, I think his work in in that area, for the most part, is pretty good. Um, but I don't think uh, with the capital controversy, I think him switching over to a, a more post-Keynesian view, uh, I, I don't I don't see the the reason for that or, or not the reason for that. I, I see why he did it. I just don't think uh, he should have. Well, he certainly shouldn't have. Um, but that that is not much to say that now, <laughs> like a hundred years later. But um, it's. It, the the original uh, switch, I think, geared half the conflict with an LSE because obviously, as Baker noted, there was there was so much conflict already existing between an, an LSE, like half of them were Hayekians, and the other half were geared towards completely other schools, and it's uh, and that conflict that already existed and Hayek was clearly dominating. Like he he, he delivered his prices and production lectures at LSE, I'm pretty sure, and um. And all that type of thing that was going on, LSE was becoming more and more Hayekian until the whole Kaldor switch. Once that happened and Kaldor came back from his one-year break, I think it was to Germany. I'm not 100% sure, but um, I, think he, I think he took a break uh, as a professor at LSE to go to Germany. And after he came back from that, that was, um, that was where the conflicts really began. And it started to become way more geared toward the Keynesian or neoclassical orthodoxy than it was uh, the Austrian or Hayekian types, which is why Hayek was so distasteful of Kaldor Cal- uh, toward the end. Wait, uh, what time period are we in right now? Um, well, let me check when the original uh, Hayek and Kaldor stuff happened. Uh, Brent, do you want to add anything? Ben, do you want to add anything? For uh, all honesty, I don't know a whole lot more, uh, a whole lot about the uh, history of the Austrian economist. Um, I definitely would like to read more about it in the future. I'm definitely learning a lot now, but I'm, I'm more so going to contribute to the uh, second part, more talking about the his, uh, the uh, future. Okay. Uh, do so, you want to talk about the contrast in like uh, the Misesian theory of money and credit? I know Craig was referencing it earlier, um, but th- that that definitely. There's a there's a large contrast there. I'm in the midst of, I've been in front of me right here actually. But, uh, he his theory just of how money functions, and actually in chapter two, uh, which is I think the chapter you referenced before, he talks about the and I quote uh the immeasurability of subjective use values. So yeah. this theory, the theory of money and credit, his theory of his theory of how money functions, firstly is based off of subjectivism, which goes back to Menger's principles and how it builds off of that. And uh, with marginal utility, the application, and this is actually something Rothbard touches on in MES as well, but he basically talks about the application of the law of marginal utility to money 
and uh, this goes back to the uh, innate subjectivity of it and how uh, the amount that is being lost when you add a marginal unit to a stock can't be quantified. Uh, it'd just be entirely subject oriented. Yeah, 100%. And this is this is what I was I was trying to get earlier with uh, econometrics and subjective value, because Mandra's contributions and these people who say, oh, well, Austrian economics isn't relevant anymore because all of its contributions are in the original neoclassical orthodoxy completely misunderstand that these these econometrics based models are are completely they completely diminish the role of diminished marginal utility, ironically, but um, the, the, the role that's being diminished continually within econometrics because of the, because it's not even just diminishing marginal utility, it's widely subjective theory of value because that original contribution of diminishing marginal utility and its unquantifiable nature is founded on the subjective theory of value, which is fundamentally unquantifiable as in, as in organal terms. And, um, and, and that contribution by the theory of money and credit and Rothbard and those areas are significantly important because when we're talking about econometrics, that immeasurability provides serious issues because when we're when we're then going to measure uh, a wider economy through mathematical models, it fundamentally has to assume there is only one good in every stock for any sort of valid comparison. Everything else has to be totally arbitrary and totally made up in regards to uh, additions to stocks and goods. Uh, Big, I think you were going to say something before um, I started talking about the theory of money and credit. Yeah, so I totally forgot, but I will say uh, Rothbard was born in 26. That's kind of where we are right now. Uh, so I think we should kind of emphasize that right now we're seeing, we're like at the peak of, uh, I guess, Austrian thought um, because one of the most prominent uh, economic schools in the world, the London School of Economics, is being dominated by Austrian thought. But we're going to we're about to see a very steep decline. Uh, not do not not if it's not Hayek's fault. Like let's be honest, uh, he was arguing with a bunch of Englishmen. He spoke German, uh, but it's it's about to get pretty bad for the Austrian school. Yes, this uh, this is where everything goes downhill uh, in regards to the Austrians. Um, it's unfortunate and it isn't Hayek's fault, but definitely added to many of his sins, including his most notable sin of not reviewing the general theory. Yeah, seriously. I and he had so many of his students and proteges tell him that he should, but he just he just I don't he didn't, and I don't know why. Because um, I, I had to pick up the torch. Uh, I believe that he. I'm not sure if it was. I, I can't remember, so don't take this as certain. But I believe. Um, I can't remember if it was in a later TV interview or if it was in uh, some sort of written article, but I can remember uh, Hayek was answering questions on his debate with uh, Keynes. And I can remember what the interviewer or the interviewee, sorry, he asked, uh, do you have any regrets? But, but, you know, that type of question. And I, I believe Hayek responded and he did say one of his regrets was not doing a proper review of the general theory. So I think that was kind of one of the things he saw in his career that he he did have regrets over. But don't take that uh, for sure. And I, I can, I will go now and I will quickly try and find uh, where he said that so we can we can know where our heads are. Yes, and I I'd obviously I don't put him at fault in any way, but because of uh, some of the uh, some of the Austrian thinkers kind of uh, being dominated by Keynesian. Uh, there was a uh, a dark time. I think 
I, I forget who said it. I think it might have been it might have been Ludwig, Ludwig Lachmann who said that uh, in the 1920s, obviously Austrian thought was raging in London. But by the early 1930s, there was two Hayekians left. That was Hayek himself and Lachmann, which is tragic. It's just it's very very sad. Yeah, one one hundred percent. And even before this, um, even before the the LSE stuff went down, we we had the the debates between uh Bombwork and um uh, John Bates Clark. That that was something we we should probably touch on as well, given the importance that John Bates Clark played on later Frank Knight and uh the monstrous conception of interest and capital. So I think that most of this is going to be predicated around capital theory because that was like what most of the Austrian school's history is is mainly involved with but um yeah the 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 monitor's conception of capital if anyone wants to comment on that um please go um, ahead just before we comment on that i would just like to say uh roger garrison does have a paper uh discussing uh hayek and friedman and in it he goes into some details about hayek's regrets over not reviewing the general theory sorry i just like to I mean, on Garrison and just monetarism, I guess, uh, I think he has a section dedicated in time and money. I'll try and find the section here. Um, he also, he has, um, but he has a section on it dedicated to, I, I, I just monetarism. I'm not sure if it's the their conception of capital, but um, I just know it's dedicated to that. So I think we should uh, shift a little bit uh towards some of the conversation that was going on towards the decline of the Austrian school, the London School of Economics. Uh, one of the major topics was the paradox of thrift, paradox of savings. Uh, do we want to talk about that some? The, like part of the Keynes-Hayek debate? Yeah. So in 1931, uh, Hayek's article, I don't know the name of it in German, uh, but his, his article, which in English was called uh, the paradox of savings. He released it in 29. It was published in 31 at the London School of Economics. Uh, I think uh, I, I forgot who um, who translated it for him. Anyway, he released it and he got almost no feedback from it uh, for a couple of months. Uh, and I don't know why, because it I don't. So in in there's the book uh, Contra Keynes in Cambridge. Uh, which is a collection of works by F.A. Hayek and its correspondence to and from Hayek, Straffa, you know, uh, it's just basically a collection of arguments. Uh, after the section, um, after his work uh, on the paradox of savings, there's no response. And I, I've always wondered if Keynes actually read it. I, I don't know. I believe it was, uh, if I'm not mistaken, I've, I've not fully read Prices in Production yet. I've read most of it, but not read it fully. Um, I believe uh, The Paradox of Savings was published in there, and Keynes had uh, private correspondence with Hayek all over the book, so he may have touched on it in a private correspondence. It really gets at the core like fallacies behind the Keynesian view. Uh, so I, it does disappoint me that I can't find, I'm sure it's out there somewhere, but I've not been able to find a response from um, I yeah. do know, obviously you mentioned uh, the book uh, Contra Keynes in Cambridge, that in the book, in the correspondence, it is worth noting that at one point um, Keynes does ask for, uh, in, a, in a letter to Hayek, some clarification on Hayek's uh, sort of definitions of savings, which was uh, in Economica, uh, page 402. 
which yeah. I, thought was, I thought was interesting to sort of note, but it wasn't exactly on the paradox necessarily. Yeah, one of the central points of Keynes' theory on the whole was uh, was thrashed away. As surprising, um, given how big the section is in prices and production, um, that Keynes didn't publicly come out with a with a strict formal rejoinder, considering how central it is to his theory of depressions. Uh, I've been recently working on Keynes' theory of the trade cycle, and there's two aspects that are most important in his explanation of the boom-bust cycle, which is one, expectations are what he calls the marginal efficiency of capital, and two, when the depression comes, it's the collapse of the marginal efficiency of capital, or more generally, in that sense, um, business outlooks, as he calls it, uh, and using common language, uh, business expectations. And the, the role that savings plays in uh, reducing what, like, what Keynes thought, that it reduces business profits, it reduces employment, thereby income, and all these, the, all these fall, within the falling investment, the falling income, the reducing business profits from increased savings, uh, and the depression. So Keynes thought the um, main explanation of why the boom collapses is one, a collapse of business outlook on the future expectations of the economy due to, I believe he mainly identified it as a psychological theory, but I personally think that Keynes' theory is much better explained by uh, a sudden rise in the interest rate by uh, competition to gain lending or more, uh, or more and credit because uh, the prices of capital is rising, which I personally believe in is the Ricardo effect due to rising capital prices, uh, rising commodity prices in general, um, increases the ter- uh, short-term processes, increases the turnover with higher prices. It mathematically shows that there's a significantly higher IRR rate. Um, but as it comes to the paradox of thrift and the such, it's um, it, it misrepresents the actual structure of the economy. It misrepresents the time dimensions of the economy. What Keynes fails to understand is that uh, the paradox of thrift accounts for a single a single two stage of the economy, the circular flow model. This this doesn't explain to us how the intertemporal structure of production can move through. What savings does is allows an expansion in the long term. It may contain a temporary contraction and falling of business profits, but what that also contains is an increase in loanable funds. As that, incre- as that increase in loanable funds occurs, an expansion of business profits through more credit that is sustainable and growth and doesn't allow, um, doesn't allow consumption and investment to move together in the short run, uh, these sacrifices that are made in the short run consumption and these falling business profits are only temporary in nature. The expansion of these uh, industries and the time structure of production can only be accounted for by an intertemporal model. What Keynes doesn't account for is the, the time in the economy because he doesn't have a proper formal capital theory. What he has is the circular flow model that can only account for short-term demand economics. So at the moment, we're, uh, we're almost we're in the mid-30s, almost getting into World War II. I'd like to I'd like to mention that while all this is going on, there's a few economists in America who have picked up on kind of the Austrian view, specifically Frank Fetter. Um, yeah. So actually, uh, just before we kind of walk away from uh, the paradox of saving, um, are, are any of you guys familiar with Foster and Catchings? Yep. Um, OK, uh, yeah. So I think that is definitely I don't think it's really vital that we go into that right now, but I do think that that would be a good conversation if we ever did an episode on the paradox of savings. Um, Spectrify, um, Ben, hi, are you aware of um, those two? No. Uh, not massively. Should I touch on that? 
I yeah, think you should start a regiment. Yeah, I think I think the, that's the good. Paradox idea. of savings doesn't that include um, a, a formal refutation? So, um, to those two. Yeah. So actually, so this was actually, um, uh, I, if I'm remembering this correctly, um, they were kind of around um, a few decades before um, Hayek in America, and they did kind of start at an equilibrium position where firms are able to. Uh, sell their products at prices exceeding the costs, and all of those profits are paid out as dividends to the owners. And so if you uh, suppose that firms are beginning to retain their earnings in order to invest them internally in new capital goods, uh, a factory, uh, with the intention of increasing the firm's productive capacity, uh, while the new factory is under uh, construction, there is no problem. Um, and the supply and the demand for consumer goods uh, just stays I guess, unchanged, and the dividend income lost by shareholders, uh, which would be due to something like uh, an increase in retained earnings, is paid out to the same or even different workers building the factory as wages. And, and there's a lot more to this, um, <laughs> but I don't want to kind of go down a rabbit hole, um, but that is kind of the foundation of uh, their analysis, and Hayek does um, have a lot of contentions with that, but um, again, he didn't really get of attention on it um yeah uh baker were you gonna say something on you said we're getting into the 30s and 40s yeah so we're almost getting into world war ii and i think this is a good time to uh mention one of the uh well i'll backtrack a little bit uh during the whole uh you know uh, hayek uh, hayek keynes debate in london uh frank fetter is working in america and kind of uh, planting a little Austrian seed in some of the American universities. Anyway, uh, fast forward a little bit. Uh, it's, you know, the eve of World War II. Uh, obviously, Austria is uh, a little a little fascist, you know. I get, Yeah, they're a little fascist. Um, and Mises gets a knock at the door. It's some Nazis. Uh, he's kind of forced to come to America uh, and live in dire poverty. Do we, do we want to talk about Mises' time? In, yeah, uh, no, let's, let's, let's talk about Mises' time in the war. That, that would be an interesting point of discussion. All right. Uh, here, let me find. I've got my notes somewhere. Yeah. Uh, so when Mises came to America, obviously he was in dire poverty. Uh, he had a, a small one-room apartment. It gave him and his wife, Margaret, some time to, uh, to work on, I forgot what it was called in German, but some time to expand upon his comprehensive German work. Uh, English, add on to it and release it as human action. Um, he uh, read it aloud. She typed it on her typewriter. Uh, and while they're doing this, Henry Hazlitt and a few others are trying to get Mises a spot, uh, a teaching spot at NYU. They can't do it. Eventually they get him a, a, a role as a, uh, they gave him a role. Uh, he did some graduate level seminars, I believe. Uh, and this is where Rothbard comes in and this is where a few other uh modern american it, does anybody want to expand on that the Mises is on ours yeah i could uh so rothbard wasn't an austrian at first per se um i guess while he was a student um i i, I know craig and i i think baker um because baker originally i uh, you i know you talked a lot about rothbard when you were doing that uh gold standard debate um and different panics and crashes and then craig just being a full-fledged rothbardian for ever uh so i believe in this area he started uh learning at the university of columbia 
Uh, and he at this time he was not a an associate of Mises. Um, it was more of just someone he knew of, if I'm not mistaken, if he knew him at all. He uh, took a course on price theory by George Stigler, um, if any of you know about that. Um, and he encountered arguments um, against popular measures of price and rent control. And those arguments were actually super appealing to him. And he wrote to the publisher of uh, the, the pamphlet that he had with Stigler and Milton Friedman on rent control. And so the, the publisher, he uh, was in the FEE, that's the Foundation of Economic Education. So he does uh, go to this he the headquarters of FEE. And so that, that, that is where he met Mises. And so Rothbard, had uh, he got really attracted to his kind of laissez-faire economics. And when uh, Mises came out with him in action, in, wasn't it 1945? I, it might have been 49. Or 49. Right, right. 49. Okay. So, and it, it, so it made a, like uh, I think Spectrify was saying earlier, it made uh, quite an impression on him. Um, and since then, he was a praxeologist. Um, and in human action, uh, he did find the consistent and rigorous defense of a free economy. Uh, which he had been searching for for a long time. Um, and shortly after that, he became a member of those seminars that were mentioned before um, until he actually got his PhD at the University of Columbia. And so his, his mentor, men, mentor before Mises was, um, who was it, uh, Joseph uh, Dorfman? And uh, also, his wasn't his uh, thesis for his PhD, The Panic of uh, 1819? Yes, it was The Panic of 1819, still widely, uh, widely cited and respected. Probably his only work that is uh, widely, uh, widely accepted by the mainstream, still considered like the best book on the topic, uh, Panic of 1819. Uh, I, I would like to mention, it was during this time, during his, uh, uh, his Columbia days, that he, that he started... Uh, it's kind of nerdy what he called the circle of Bastiat, which was basically a group of him and his friends some of them were high school age some of them were college age uh and they basically just liked to talk about free market economics and this is kind of where uh, uh rothbard converted to anarchism i guess I yeah mean, I, I think um I, I don't know if this go is going like too fast but that that the circle i think that's um because i was talking i think i was talking to block about this a few weeks ago but that's where he, and I think this is what, uh, why he shares pretty much on almost every topic except for like two things. Why he shares so many of his views with Rothbard, uh, like um, even in internal Austrian debates, like he's a full reserver uh, and the pure time preference theory. But I think that that circle, uh, and even with Hoppe, it isn't just exclusively block, but uh, that circle definitely helped expand um, even into like the modern thinkers that we see today. Uh, but I don't know if you guys want to get into that era yet because that's that's like way way ahead, and I think we're still in like the fifties now. Uh, I yeah. can expand on a little bit of what Baker was talking about with uh, Mises and the Gestapo. So uh, I think it was uh, 1934 that Mises moved out of Austria because at this point the Nazis were advancing and they were getting closer, and he obviously was very worried about this because not only was he Jewish, but he was a major. Uh, major figure in economics and the Nazis were extremely uh, anti-capitalist. And so they were targeting people like Mises. And, uh, and I believe he was actually uh, in Vienna temporarily um, in, in 38. 
And that's when the Gestapo came from him and he ended up having to flee uh, back to, uh, I believe it was uh, Switzerland. Um, and they actually took like thousands of pages of manuscripts that belonged to uh, Mises. And these weren't actually uh, rediscovered until 1996 yeah. by the uh, Holocaust Museum. They were in then, the Soviet Union. Yep, right, right. And then uh, Mises moved to the United States in 1940. And at this point, um, Rothbard was studying mathematics and economics, and uh, he started reading Mises in the early 40s, and then attended one of his uh, one of his seminars in New York, and got to meet him. And then a uh, a nonprofit that was uh, big into free market economics approached Rothbard, and they asked him to join, and they wanted specifically to uh, pay him to write uh, a sort of a more basic version or slash introduction of human action. And uh, he began working on it and showed some of it to Mises and he absolutely loved it. And, uh, and then Rothbard expanded on it significantly and that ended up becoming a man economy and state, which is, you know, one of the most uh, major works in, in, uh, in the Austrian school, at least as far as like uh, popularity anyways. And yeah. um, so it was the Volker, the Volker fund that reached out to him. And it, his original goal was to just kind of restate uh, restate human action in layman's terms. Uh, but as he was going, it talks about this in the uh, uh, Man, Economy, and State Scholars Edition in the introduction. I think it's the introduction. Yeah, yeah uh, it is. It talks about how he couldn't, he kind of, uh, while he was studying human action, he did find holes in it, specifically in Mises's uh, monopoly theory. He scrapped all of it, started from the beginning. And created a brand new uh, monopoly theory, uh, and then he wanted to expand on Mises' uh, production or theory of production. Uh, so he kind of joined Mises and uh, Fetter's. Yeah, I believe it was Frank Fetter's view of capital production theory, and added quite a bit. So even though he tried to just do a restatement, he couldn't do it because. So he, like I said, it, it was. Rothbard. And to yeah. kind of build off that, so um, with monopoly theory, um, when he was kind of. Uh, deepening his understanding of monopolies um, and kind of uh, Mises's view of laissez-faire economics, he he came he came in a fork in a road, you know, um, because the arguments for market provision of goods and services applied just across the board, and so if not, should even the protection of defense uh, be offered on the market rather than supplied by a coercive monopoly, which would take the form of the state, which is where Rothbard flourished uh, in various books, um, which is also include Man, Economy, and State, most notice, like, notably among every Austrian. I think it's fair to say every uh, invested Austrian has read Anatomy of the State, um, that essay by him. He actually kind of did come, uh, this fork in the road that he came with was, okay, do I embrace this laissez-faire type or do I just abandon it and kind of come across as like this individual anarchist position, which actually he did kind of officially decide. Um, I want to say either late uh, 40 or 59 or 50, no, 49. So in 49, either in the winter or the early spring of 50, I'm not quite sure. Um, he did make that kind of final decision on embracing anarchism. Yeah. And I'd like to go back a little bit to what Ben was, what, what we were talking about earlier with the Volcker Fund coming to Rothbard and asking him to write the book. When he had the, the edition of the book that he was ready to put out, 
uh, he gave it to his editors at the Volcker Fund. And the final chapter, which we now know is Power and Market, I guess it was supposed to be, I forgot what number, anyway, uh, they didn't like it. So they agreed to publish it later on down the road as a totally separate book. Um, but they didn't publish it with the original. So for people who are watching who want to buy Man, Economy, and State, when you get the Scholar's Edition, which is the most popular edition, Power and Market was not originally in the book, uh, which is, it's very unfortunate because a lot of Austrians and a lot of just uh, laymen to economics in general bought the book. And if they would have read that final chapter, that final section, it would have been very powerful. And it would have it made... Uh, I think it would have made a larger influence, especially it would have made a larger influence if it was published with uh, uh, with that last section, like it was orig originally intended to. Yeah, it's, uh, Joseph it's funny. Like, something on it. It's a great standalone book. It just builds a lot off of what Rothbard was writing at the time, because that's what it was supposed to do. Like he he alludes a lot to some like to earlier chapters, especially uh, when he talks about certain types of interventionism. Uh, it, it really is just, it's great. Yeah, definitely. And building like, especially like reading Power of Market either before or after Mises' interventionism is like, a, is a really good combination if you're looking for it. Like liberalism, interventionism, and Power of Market altogether is a godly combo. Oh yeah, oh yeah. I will say though, uh, Mises in liberalism kind of sucks up to democracy just a little bit. So you might <laughs> read you know something a little anti-state just to take the edge off i'd like to say uh when mises had his, when mises was doing his seminars uh, i forgot who was talking i think i heard this from walter block but i could be wrong mises as a, as a base used henry hazlitt's economics in one lesson for his uh for his lessons and i always think that that that's a testament to uh to henry hazlitt who i'm going off on a tangent or going off topic a little bit henry hazlitt uh, if it weren't for Henry, for Henry Hazlitt, Mises wouldn't have come to America. He wouldn't have been able to uh, to release human action. FEE would exist, but it would not be the powerhouse that it is today. We could have a whole episode all by itself about Henry Hazlitt's philosophy. And yeah, that's all I got to say. That is definitely an episode for the future, 100%. Um, so I'm kind of talking more about man economy and state because there is so much to talk about just that as a piece in itself because – um, it is widely credited as kind of a revitalization of Austrian economics, at least in America. Um, but something that I do think that is um, something that should be brought to light, especially concerning the re unfortunately recent uh, reintroduction of the calculation debate onto social media and the political realm, uh, which is uh, a, a nuisance to all of us um, with the solutions that we hear where we cannot tell the difference between a genuine uh, proposition and a satirical one. Uh, but something that I do think uh, that Rothbard really um, was something really prominent that he came up with was uh, his aspect of the size of firms and their ability to calculate uh, internally. Uh, I believe that's vertical integration. That I do think is definitely Again, just going back to his monopoly theory, which I know Baker is very fond of. It's yeah, I just I I do think that he's kind of uh, overlooked in the calculation debate as compared to Mises, which I do think is very unfortunate. 
Oh, 100%. And Mises works on uh, economic calculation. I've read Socialism, I've read Economic Calculation, The Socialist Commonwealth, and I, I've read most of Mises' works on economic calculation, but they weren't formulated fantastically. The best formulation you can find is in human action. I'm pretty sure this is universally observed. But um, when it comes to Rothbard, uh, Peter, Peter Botek uh, wrote a fantastic article on this called... Uh, I believe it was the forgotten contribution, Murray Rothbard and uh, and socialism theory and practice. And he he talks about how in the monopoly theory of man economy and state, uh, Rothbard uh, includes this uh, calculation analysis and external markets and horizontal integration when it comes to the productive structure. When when you when you're determining or calcul or calculating input markets when on uh, monopolies, it becomes a problem because there is no external market to base pricing off of. It's just as groping in the dark as um, as socialist central planners are. When there's no external market to determine these input to output ratios because like stuff like price fixing or whatever, it's a fundamentally unsustainable practice due to the fact that the, the inability to calculate will immediately lead to the destruction of that monopoly. So not only the fact that free markets put such heavy restrictions on monopolies to begin with, significant better than government has ever done historically with antitrust laws, which have only ever been used to serve as charter factors and uh, political interests. But when it comes to actual free market disciplines on monopoly, not only the calculation side, but the, the competition side, the, the free entry and the, the Karsner's theory of disequilibrium and all these types of things as an entrepreneurship, uh, as, as they come into like surpluses of stocks and uh, undermining stocks. And then there's the whole Rothbard revision of the Lang model stuff, which is very similar to mine that I wrote in my research paper, uh, a critique of the Lang model. Um, Rothbard revises it in, in a similar way that I did. And um, I, I seem to have these weird connections with Rothbard every so often. But, um, it's, but when, it, when it comes to Rothbard and monopoly theory and socialism, that contribution that Rothbard made is incredibly important. And it's been completely undermined in uh, libertarian monopoly theory. I can't believe we forgot to include the the calculation debates because I've got a, I've got a copy of socialism right here. Mises, one of, in my opinion, Mises has two uh, of his most important books: Theory of Money and Credit and Socialism. Human Action is up there just because it kind of kept the Austrian school from dying. But those two books, to me, are his two most important contributions. Uh, I I can't believe I forgot to mention socialism like that. That kind of bothers me. Um, I think we should I also personally uh, I personally disagree with socialism. I actually think that the book was uh, it, it was it was half and worthless, honestly. I didn't see that many contributions. Like the the points that Mises makes in the book are not fantastic. I find the book very, very average compared to some of his other works. Oh, I know. And we've talked about this, especially I'm trying to remember which chapter was. It was something about like incentives of central planners. You know, I don't remember what yeah. I'm talking about. Yes, yeah. uh, adverse incentives and stock investments. Yeah. Yeah, I remember you weren't very fond of that. Yeah. Um, but towards the end, like I, I'll admit there was a lot of just kind of gray area where, I'll be honest, it's translated in you know from from German into English. I can't understand a lot of it, but I don't know. I feel I got a lot out of that book. Um, I personally got nothing. I'm not gonna lie. <laughs> man, I, I mean, I will say, I don't know. You kind of sound like I think Hayek that wrote the introduction. And he had a very similar view of it. He kind of thought that it was, um, it was, I don't know, not counterproductive. Uh, it was redundant. And uh, he had all these criticisms of it. But then he said that he eventually came around to it and found the majority of what was written in the book to be true. Uh, I don't remember when he wrote the introduction, but 
the thing I do find uh, and the, I do find worthwhile in socialism is Mises as, as part of Mises' sociology uh, and his chapter, uh, his history in sociology and socialism is probably the most important contribution to me because I just cited this in, a, in an edit, a video I made of uh, immigration, culture, and libertarianism. Uh, Mises' uh, comments on like uh, this, the view of society as an organism, he talks about the history and the development of the division of labor. He talks about the theory of contract and marriage and uh, the collective and violence and all this sort of history which is what i think um is the important part of that book is the history lessons that you get out of it it's the development of how contract and modern society allowed these uh allowed such um that we have now like under liberal society what we see as uh the the main principles can only be there because of property rights and contract and uh the the, the history lessons that mises gives in views like uh civilization as the fundamental products of the division of labor as in the uh, society and civilization can only exist within um, a pretext of division of labor and division of knowledge. The most important part of civilization itself is the division of labor. It's the widespread division of knowledge that allows the market to function as productively as it does, and it allows the sort of technological society to develop that we've seen recently. Um, we, we obviously see an increasing and like an incredible amount of division of knowledge and the current structure of production and uh, and, and general um, information. We see so much local knowledge, so much going on at the local level, so much sharing of individual lives and things like this the Hayek's case for local knowledge only becomes ever more evident with technology and this is something that the socialist calculation debate never tended to understand and with this development of local knowledge even assuming away we've also got Engelhart's computation stuff and uh and cockshot <laughs> cockshot bro this this, this dude uh, is I heard completely... cockshot's name what's up um yeah. <laughs> he, he, this man is completely underestimating uh the how complex the market is and how complex calculation within the market is he completely disregarded all of Hayek's contributions like one after reading at least uh, like Hayek's one of the most famed articles in 1945 uh, the use of knowledge in society one should come to the conclusion directly after that how widespread the division of knowledge and the actual market is and I, I personally think when it, when it comes to Mises and socialism, um, the historical lessons that we gain from socialism and talking about the division of labor and civilization should be the lessons taken and the form of uh, and, and the form that we should continue to promote the division of labor and these widespread divisions of knowledge and run about production structures and so on as like um, and anything that goes to contribute or diminish this can be seen as going against or reducing the capacities of civilization itself. Yeah, I'm surprised you didn't like it more, especially because he was very, very uh, adamant for like traditional social. Uh, so that was the like, part I did like. <laughs> marriage. Uh, it was pretty early on in there, but uh, I remember. Yeah, yeah, like the first hundred pages of socialism. Uh, yeah. But I think I'm. I think I agree with Craig. Uh, I. I think the book, um, the book's probably uh, out of out of all of Mises' works that I've read. I, I think that'd probably be my least favorite, but that might just be because I don't really care for sociology. Mm-hmm. Um, I did enjoy the economic sections of it, but I still think the the bits in human action, even uh, even though they are like much shorter than it is in socialism, I do think that those are. I think that uh, provides a better exposition of what economic calculation is. And the impossibility of it under socialism, um, and then just to touch on centri- the um, Engelhart paper and Cockshot, there is um, so 
Engelhardt's paper, the way it's structured, is he basically goes, okay, just assume the calculation problem is solved and the knowledge problem solved, and then we're going to do so via computation. We still need to solve a particular computation problem regarding it. And then he basically has all the mathematics in there, like, okay, there's the limits on processing power. These are the assumptions you're making in regards um, uh, in regards to what must be true, like that utility can be compared interpersonally. Uh, but And then he has his touchstones with reality, which is basically, this is how things are, like consumer goods are heterogeneous. Um, and uh, once you have uh, your, what you're assuming away for the socialist and what is actually the case, you come up with your results and that's where he gets the figure of, I think, what is it, like 14 quintillion years? Um, but just outside of that, Cockshot, yeah, it's true. He underestimates the amount of variables. But even that critique, I'd say, is minute in comparison to the criticisms that Cosmos Elysi brings up. Um, because I guess one of his more prominent papers, I don't know if you guys have seen uh, the 1993 paper. I think it's called like the Socialist Calculation Debate Revisited, Calculation yeah. Complexity Economic Planning. Uh, where yeah. he concludes that we can just calculate the entirety of the economy in 17 minutes. Ridiculous. He assumes so many things, like, firstly, the application of Engelhardt's paper, which I already went into. And then he does, in his actual model, he doesn't index by time and space. And then further, he assumes that production functions in their entirety are linear, when that obviously isn't true, right? We have non, there are nonlinear production functions that we utilize. So uh, he's, um, his model is flawed. And there's still problems of magnitude in regard to the impossibility. So it'd be uh, it'd be uh, a win for for the Austrians on both the Misesian and the Hayekian front. The Hayekian front just being the practical impossibility thesis and not the actual original impossibility thesis. Uh, but yeah. that, I, I just uh, like ranting about Cockshot. Um, <laughs> you guys uh, can go ahead. Yeah, so, on top of um, the the the, co the Cockshot. Um like estimates of the computation powers of computer and the ability to economic plan. Lang was significantly worse on this because this, I, I wrote about this in my paper, uh, critique of the Lang model. Um, Lang had three stages in economic development. His first was a complete copy and complete rehash of another's model developed during World War II. The second was his own, um, was his own individual uh, model, which uh, assumed equilibrium, parametric prices. I talk about all this and all uh, his assumed functions and how he completely disregards cost as objective factor and blah, 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 and the marginal cost of production. But when it comes to his later stage of development, what he embraced was, uh, what, he, what he said was that computers could calculate, and I quote, the computers could calculate uh, the economic, they could economically plan in under one second. And yeah. this was like 19, 1900s. This is like not completely not up to date from now. And what and Langen based a Stalinist regime that was used computers as cal calculation. And his, his claim obviously was completely baseless and he completely made it up. But it's, it's, it's telling that he, he even retracted all of his earlier works to embrace a Stalinist regime in which computers could economically calculate under one second. That's incredibly telling to me. Yeah. So we've discussed, uh, you know, Rothbard and Man, Economy and State. It was released in 62. So we're getting kind of close to uh, 1974, uh, the uh, the Austrian conference in 1974. Should we real, talk, about, should we talk uh, about that? I have something just real quick. I think that we should definitely bring up uh, with just before uh, heading off from Rothbard um, is definitely is that we've talked about how Rothbard agrees with uh, Mises. Um, uh, on 
virtually everything um, besides a few kind of minor stuff. But I think that definitely uh, their differences in kind of more philosophical approach, um, especially with morality and ethics, um, with Rothbard taking more of a neo-Aristotelian approach as compared to Mises, uh, which I believe was kind of more of a um, an orderly utilitarian. Okay, should we move on from the socialist calculation debate, difference between Murray Rothbard? Uh, we should move on to the conference and the Hayek's Nobel Prize. That's that's the next big thing that happened in the history of Austrian economics. Well, I so, think also one more thing we should definitely touch down on is kind of, uh, we did talk about Keynes um, and a little bit about Mises during the Great Depression, but I think that we should definitely talk about the wave of Keynesian thought during the Great Depression and yeah. how... Um, how much uh, Keynes was contributed or uh, not contributed, uh, credited with um, escaping the Great Depression. The whole like neoclassical synthesis between the Great Depression and the 1970s. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I'll touch on it a little bit. So after World War II, uh, Hike was kind of, Hike was excited. Uh, Keynes died. So he was. <laughs> Everybody was excited. All the Austrians were excited. Keynes is dead. Let's go. Uh, but he, because he was one of the only really notable economists at the time uh, that was consistently pumping out original work. Everybody else was kind of uh, kowtowing to the dead Keynes. Uh, but he almost immediately fell into obscurity. Should we talk about some of the contra- like the uh, some of the controversy during two thousand eight between Garrison and Salerno, or do you think we should just go and threaten into the future of Austrian economics? I, uh, yeah, I think we're cutting on time here. I think we should just go straight into the future. I think that definitely that, that whole two thousand eight crisis could be an episode on its own. Oh yeah, well, we're we're planning to do um a, a book review on meltdown uh in the future at some point. Um, so we will definitely go into the Garrison Salerno stuff in two thousand eight during that. Uh, I think there's a lecture from a few months ago. Uh, I forgot who it was given by, but it, it was titled, like, uh, it was called, like, Rothbard's Account of the Action Axiom, like a Neo-Aristotelian Approach. Oh, yes, I remember this this article. Uh, well, not article, sorry, lecture. Uh, I didn't really understand much of it. I'm, I'm not going to lie. I, I don't particularly know what the difference is, mostly because I'm not that versed on praxeology, but... Um, but yeah, I, I remember watching that lecture um, a while back, and I remember reading uh, through the Ethics of Liberty, and Rothbard's critique of Mises' utilitarianism. It revolves mostly, or at least for the most part, as I remember it, around the ability to calculate utility, um, which I, I personally think that um, uh, what's it called ethical in- intuitionism. Um, I, I personally think that could provide an, an answer to the sort of calculation critiques of utilitarianism. But again, yeah. I'm not a philosophy guy. Don't really know. I, I, I have also kind of visited that a little bit. And the reason why I brought up uh, ordinal is uh, from comparison to um, kind of more orthodox uh, utilitarianism as in like John Stuart Mill of kind of these ordinal or no cardinal um, utils. Um, Mises kind of adopted the preconceived kind of uh, marginal utility approach and saying that these utils are of this subjective whim of uh, ordinal rather than cardinal ranking. Yeah. Uh, ben was talking about this earlier. Uh, Mises stuff was basically stolen from him in the 30s by the Nazis. It was then cl- uh, taken by the Soviet Union and stored in Moscow. And after the Soviet Union, fe- Union fell, I think it was in 1994, uh, all of his uh, unfinished works were found. 
um, and they were bought by Hillsdale College, and they're currently there at Hillsdale College. Um, Bob Murphy, you know, pretty famous modern Austrian, uh, went to Hillsdale, and he got to read a lot of a lot of the stuff. But a lot of it's never been seen before because, I mean, it's kind of a private thing, you know, Mises whole library. It's it's a big deal. I don't know. A lot of uh, Keynes's contemporaries uh, worked very hard, unfortunately. And this neo, what's called the, this neoclassical synthesis emerged, where uh, um, the neoclassical micro uh, and the Keynesian macro kind of, I, I get, like I said, merged together uh, and gave us what we now, even today, know as the mainstream of economics. Uh, Craig, you want to expand on that some? Yeah, um, this is this is another thing that was uh, that was pretty strange to me about the whole um, the whole point that Austrian the Austrian thought um, from Manger had been developed into the neoclassical orthodoxy was was strange because uh, like if you look at the orthodoxy as it is uh, macro in terms of like economic textbooks they use successively like almost interchangeably the monitors macro and Keynesian macro like we can see how significantly similar they are and this has had like a significant influence. Influence on even me, I think, like in writing uh, my, my upcoming book, The Ricard a Rehabilitation of the Ricardo Effect, I, I found that um, I am very influenced by some of Keynes' Keynes's ideas. Like I use liquidity preference a lot, like <laughs> a lot. And I think it can be really, it can really contribute to the Austrian business cycle theory and its, uh, and its impediments toward uh, higher or lower rates of interest, particularly higher rates of interest during the credit crunch, as Skousen calls it. And, uh, I, and I see this in also Garrison's work too, in Time and Money, this is particularly evident, that he's he's very influenced by Keynes' thought. In his introduction, he talks about how Keynes was the first economist he ever read. And um, and he talks about how he was taking it as like an as an engineering class. And he came across uh, Keynes and the, he read the general theory and all this type of stuff. He read the trees and money first. And he, he looked for um, the sort of Hayek Keynes debate. This is what Garrison was seeking out. But you can tell by Garrison's work um, that he's still significantly influenced by Keynes. And I think this can be said for a lot of everyone in economics these days, really, that a lot of it, a lot of macro business cycle theory is influenced by Keynesian ideas, the liquidity preference theory, uh, the, the marginal efficiency of capital, if that's even relevant. It's like, like Hazlitt even knows that what Keynes' cycle theory was, was basically analytic a priori. That, like, of yeah. course, a, a, a collapse in confidence is contained within the recession. This is obviously. So, but when it comes to like liquidity preference, and Skousen explains it through um, uh, a pressure towards uh, the market rate to equalize with the natural rate, that um, as the, the natural rate deviates from the market rate, uh, liquidity preference continue, would, would impose a discipline, I guess, on these sort of market rates of interest. So if the market, inter market interest rates fall, uh, commodity prices will rise, investment will continue upward. People will tend to spend more because interest rates are lower, liquidity preference is higher. There's that, that, as Garrison explains it, that any, anyone who wants to put their money at interest bearing has to bear a lender's risk. And as they're bearing a lender's risk, they want a return in the form of interest. If they're not getting a sufficient return in the form of interest, of course, the liquidity preference is going to rise. They're going to want to hold their cash liquid and money. And that sort of, and that contributes as well to the, the later discussions of the negative interest rates and why uh, this whole war on cash fiasco was happening, which I'm sure we'll get into um, possibly in a later episode, considering this has gone so long. But um, <laughs> it's, 
when it comes to Keynesian macro and monetarist macro and even people like Leal and Yeager, you can clearly see the influence Keynes had over Yeager and his writings in the Fluttering Veil. Um, it, that sort of uh, aspect of Keynesian macro and it's how it's contributed to modern economics is, is clearly very significant. Yeah. So I don't know how um, deep we're really going to go into kind of more contemporary stuff or if we're just going like kind of history, because I do think that we are pretty caught up before kind of getting to more of these uh, more current ideas and economists. Um, I'm, are we going to touch on that or are we just going to go into the future? Because I know that we are um, getting a little long on time here. I have yeah. one more one, one thing. So it's 1974. Mises is dead. Hayek's just won the Nobel Prize uh, in economics. Obviously, 1974, you know, everything that uh, the economic mainstream thought was true is kind of uh, not maybe not being disproven, but being challenged, uh, you know, with stagflation. It's not looking good for the economics profession. So in 1974, uh, in South Royalton, Vermont, a group of 50 Austrian economists, uh, they hold a conference. Uh, three of the like most notable figures, Murray Rothbard, Ludwig Lachmann, and, uh, oh, good Lord. Why can't I think? Uh, Israel Kirzner. Uh, they're all there. Walter Block's there. Salerno's there. Hutt. You know, all these uh, future economists are there. Uh, even Milton Friedman makes a presence. Uh, and this is kind of what keeps the Austrian tradition alive. It, it's kind of a, a revitalization of the Austrian school, especially, you know, uh, uh, you know, being boosted by, by Hayek's major win, you know, the Nobel prize is a pretty big deal. Um, but I, I, I forgot where I heard this anecdote, but Milton Friedman, uh, Milton Friedman, okay, no, it was Henry Hazlitt, Murray Rothbard and Hutt were talking about Mises and his, all of his contributions. Uh, and Friedman was there and Friedman said that, yeah, you know, Mises made some good contributions, but he was too radical. Uh, and he got flamed on, he got flamed on by a lot of people. And I, I'm pretty sure that's where, uh, that's where Rothbard and Friedman really, uh, came into opposition because originally they liked each other, you know, they were kind of liberty minded, but, uh, it was after that conference that Rothbard wasn't a big fan. Um, if you guys don't have anything to say about the, um, uh, the 1974 Austrian conference. I do have one thing to say about Mises uh, discovered papers. Yeah, go for it. So kind of making a segue into the future, um, something that I think is really valuable. Um, it's kind of less of a uh, who is going to do what kind of thing, but more of, um, well, I, I, I guess it is more of a who, but more of a general sense of, I think that in regards to the future of Austrian economics, that, uh, I'm, I'm a huge, uh, well, so I'm not huge, but, uh, I do think, uh, that social media has a lot to do with the way our society functions now. And I definitely think that, um, that is going to be like a huge influence on the future of the Austrian school, especially concerning that people our age, um, I'm 17, almost 18. I would say 30 years ago, even before that Mises' time, no one my age would be into this or Baker's age or Craig's age. I, it, it just wouldn't happen. And so I definitely think that we are going to see some pretty big strides, maybe not a whole um, economic revolution, but definitely just this time that we're going to be able to think about ideas and uh, filter and 
revisit um, will definitely make a lot of contributions in the future. No, yeah, yeah definitely. I, I, um, I think this is another thing that kind of arose with uh, the modern monetary theory. Uh, like it's it's at its heart a youthful populism. That's that's what it is. It's it's taking those ideas of um, we can we can continue just printing money for the the wealth to get all these welfare payments, and we can continue just printing all this to fund. We can just continue borrowing and then paying back in our sovereign currency. It, it doesn't matter. There's no limit. It's just digital accounting. Whatever, <laughs> boring. But it's like. It's it's a youthful populism, and this is this is what it is. When when you have a social media that's that's enticed by all these stupid young people that are like, I mean, what we're seeing with Extinction Rebellion, like it is it's crazy. What these people are doing is like they're clearly unknowledgeable about everything. They clearly have never understood a bit of political literature in their life or even attempted to read it, but yet they still hold so much power and so much influence over the narrative precisely because they're so confident about being stupid. It's, in, that, in that sense, the, the origin, I think personally, what we'll see with social media is, is, a, is a continuing yielding to power of, uh, of teenage populism. That, that's personally what I think. It'll continue to go to these... Um, these sort of give me what I want attitudes, like it has been uh, tending towards at least. But now is, I think with social media, it's going to be exacerbated significantly worse. Nobody's nobody's going to take the Austrian business cycle theory and it's word that people that, uh, that, that spurring on a recovery is all, only going to cause a later credit boom or secondary deflation. Nobody's going to take that at its word. They, they, they want recovery now. They want the, the the big daddy state to intervene. They they want to be saved. They don't want to do the work. They they want to be saved. I agree That's to it. a certain. I agree to a certain extent, but I think the fact that somebody like Prax Ben has you know one hundred and forty thousand plus followers, the fact that we created an account. Uh, you know, neo-Austrians that got, you know, 10,000 followers plus, that's encouraging. The fact that young people are at least taking some sort of interest in it. Now, I do think that most people are stupid and most people don't uh, critically think, uh, but it's always been that way. I think that you're right. I do think it could be worsened, but I also think that it gives people in like the, you know, people, people that are uh, kind of uh, in the liberty movement, it gives us a great, great opportunity Um I don't know. I, I, we talked about this uh, after our last uh, our last uh, stream, uh, the the debate between me, Christian, and Scott over like the gold standard and the Austrian business cycle. Uh, there was people brought to uh, or people who discovered Austrian economics through that debate. And I was one of them. Yeah, I was one of them. Uh, but the fact that you can do that just by, you know, posting a couple TikTok videos saying, hey, we're going to go live on YouTube. That is awesome. And like, that's one reason why I love that we're doing these streams, like why we're doing this podcast is because we have this great opportunity and a lot of people aren't taking it. Uh, so I think with, with, with what Brent was saying about the internet and what you were saying about the internet, yes, this could be really bad, but we have the opportunity to uh, at least engage in some kind of harm reduction. 
the issue, at least that I see with libertarianism um, in that sense, is that we tend to we tend to really mess up all these opportunities. Try not to swear here, um, but um, we we tend yeah. to really mess up these opportunities. We, we've seen it continually. We've seen it after the Great Depression. We've seen it after all these banking panics. We've seen it after the Great Recession. We're seeing it now in the COVID lockdown. We tend to mess up so much at these vital points. And it's and it's it's crazy because we, we have such obscene opportunities and we have these anti-state movements like we have right now with what we talked about the last podcast episode with uh, war and we have all these Trump populism movements and then we've got all these left libertarians over here that are endorsing BLM and uh, all all cops are bad and all this nonsense and it's like it's so hard to ally with anyone anymore because libertarianism with left libertarians calling themselves part of our creed it's it's almost impossible to actually distinguish between progressive and traditionalist libertarians now that we don't have anyone to actually ally ourselves with and then the increasing pressures on social media and uh the the allowance of like such ridiculous opinions to go out so frequently and so vastly as it, to me, at least, uh, it can pose a problem, but when it, we have the opportunity, the question is, can we make it work this time? We have, we could, okay, appeal to the conservative movement and be like, hey, you're against mask mandates. Who do you think enforces those mask mandates? It's the cops. The cops enforce it. So like, we could appeal to them and we could show them why we're right and why their goals are best, uh, best achieved through our means. But we've large, you know, in large, we've not taken it. Ben, do you have anything to say? Because I know this is where you're, where you shine. Yeah, yeah. I think like number one, the best way to uh, introduce younger people into Austrian economics and thought is just starting, starting at a very small level, right? Just uh, start with something like, oh, you know, Cuba is in the news right now. So let's talk a little bit about Cuba. Well, why is Cuba failing? Is it because? Uh, TPUSA said socialism doesn't work because reasons, you know, <laughs> no, it's because, you know, you can go into detail, you can go into uh, the economic calculation problem, you can, uh, you can introduce these ideas slowly. And uh, that's one of the reasons I wanted to talk about the economic calculation problem so much on social media, because, you know, um, the typical conservative responses to socialists and communists have just been extremely inadequate. Um, so giving them something else like that to actually combat them, combat, uh, Marxists with is just very useful, uh, just at a surface level, but it also gives them, um, something to, uh, introduce them into Austrian economics, you know, because from there, uh, generally they'll know that the guy Ludwig von Mises is the one who introduced this. And then, you know, they might read some articles, they might, uh, um, you know, watch some YouTube videos on him. And that's what I've seen a lot with, uh, with conservatives who I've seen turn into libertarians. They start on a really basic level and then they just kind of like, oh, I'm kind of curious about this. And that's what happened to me too. Um, I was doing the uh, Discord debates, you know, with all the different political talk TikTokers back in the beginning. Um, and I was like, you know, I need to find better arguments against these communists, against these Marxists. And um, I found the, uh, actually my first introduction into Austrian economics was the Mises versus Marx rap. So, so I watched that and I was like, this is really interesting. Like, I like this uh, Mises guy. He sounds like he's a really cool dude. And I like some of these arguments they presented in just this uh, rap song. And so um, I started 
listening to stuff about Mises and about Austrian economics. I uh, watched like uh, Stephen Horowitz videos talking about Austrian economics. Um, I started watching the Foundation of Economic Education. They're a show uh, um, out of frame, which sort of gives like Austrian analyses of TV shows and movies and, you know, on there, which, which that's another, that's another really good thing. You know, he's doing these video essays talking about films and TV shows, which are popular. And then he introduces Austrian econ ideas through that, which is very good. I really like uh, the way he does that. Um, and that helps me learn quite a bit about the Austrian school. So uh, yeah, yeah. So at that point, after you know watching this video and uh, looking a little more into it, then I uh, ooh, then, then I read Liberalism by Mises, and that's what turned me into a classical liberal. And then you know just on from there, I got more and more into it and started meeting more people who were like really into Austrian economics. Um, and so I, I think like my story there, and then also the stories of most other of the uh most of the ancaps and libertarians that i know from like uh tiktok instagram youtube all these people i've met through social media they all generally have very similar stories to that so i think that's why we need to focus on introducing these small things first and then for like a wider scale i think uh even though this is my like weakest area monetary theory and uh banking um I think that's one of the best things for mainstream to be talking about. Um, and, and that's most of the things that Craig talked about a little while ago, the, the opportunities that Austrians can take, um, because that's something that includes a lot of things that are very important to um, many political ideologies. You know, that comes with uh, income inequality, uh, wages, all this stuff. You know, there, there's so much affected through monetary policy and banking. And so, you know, starting with anti-fed sentiments and then just going on from there um that's definitely a, a in my opinion a very good way to introduce austrian economics to the masses and that's something that peter shifted quite a bit and did did very well yeah definitely um the banking and things like that it's it's the the only issue is um in regards to things like taxation and banking is that people have gotten so used to and so like uh like passively accept into existing conditions that they're now just so used to these things that it, they know it no longer bears in their thoughts and um when i when i started talking about monetary policy and uh, banking and i posted about like fractional reserve back in the day and all this stuff like um austro hayek on instagram he told me that he was inspired by my stuff on monetary policy back then to get into everything and like that, that to me is like my biggest hope of inspiration because to affect people through such like channeling means can really, really help Austrian economics because it's just throwing them in the deep end. That's, that's, that's what it is. It's like you get into these these such core issues that whenever you come out, it's, it's, it's cr you're crazily smart. And that's the same thing that happened to Austro Hayek. Like clearly he's incredibly smart. And, um, and the fact that I inspired him through my baseline takes on monetary policies is really inspiring to me. Yeah, yeah, that, that thing yeah. you said about like just throwing people into the deep end. Yeah, I think that's kind of what it is. You know, it's a, it, the, those are definitely very complex issues, but they're also extremely uh, core issues. You know, you you got a a lot of people they want to talk about recessions, income inequality, and 
So like being like, oh, here's the solutions to these things. Here's where the problems are coming from. Um, I think that's definitely something that will uh, kind of get people scratching their heads a bit. Like, hmm, maybe some of the things I know isn't quite what it seems. Especially those Marxists who are like, um, capitalism causes a recession every four to eight years. Like the, the presentation of the Austrian business cycle in response to that is, I don't think I've ever actually seen a response by any of them. So, you know, they can't leave them scratching their heads and their opinions on capitalism can be changed by the fact that we actually know what capitalism is, unlike them, clearly. Something that... Yeah. Uh, Go ahead. Uh, something that I kind of want to just touch down real quick, uh, kind of backpedal. Um, with social media and these opportunities, um, I do think it's a, because when Craig was saying with modern monetary theory and kind of a uh, teenager populist kind of ideology, um, is while, uh, while it is a great thing that I think I myself, um, as uh, Ben explained, uh, how we both uh, found the Austrian school through social media, I definitely think that that kind of populist approach is kind of taken by a lot of uh, usually younger uh, people um, with the Austrian school um, and how they kind of just want to be kind of seen as intelligent and are just anti-communist or whatever, and then kind of give us a bad name and a bad reputation. Um, so I, do, I definitely do think that is a double-edged sword, something that we should be uh, definitely mindful of. Yeah, so here's what I think about that. Ben does a really, really good job of like uh, kind of connecting Austrian economics with current events uh, with like short videos that have like really good arguments in them. And what that does is that gives somebody who's really not going to study about it at least something to say when they're like arguing with their parents or like arguing on Facebook. Uh, towards the beginning, like the whole uh, TikTok libertarian movement, I tried to make short like lecture things on my Instagram or on my TikTok that were like, humorous, but also gave some sort of introduction. And what I think that did is that gave people who were interested uh, that caught their attention and that that you know made them like want to look into it more uh but at the same time i think that we've also kind of created uh, a way for people to add make themselves part of a community you know say oh i'm an ancap you know they think that that's edgy yeah i'm an austrian so i'm smarter you know uh, and like you guys are saying it is this it's this teenage populist movement and it can be extremely harmful to our movement itself. But I do think that a lot of what we do attracts the right people. And I think that the more people, the more good people that we attract, uh, the better. Yeah, that, that is true. And that's also why um, I personally opt uh, for a more a more socialized approach than, uh, than most of the guys in VH do. Uh, I, I personally opt to emphasize the, the anti-egalitarian, the anti-socialism aspects of... Uh, of like Rothbardian populism like if you read my works uh, particularly a beginner's guide to the Austrian business cycle theory I complete I, I particularly emphasize um like uh, the creation of money at thin air uh, how the and how the, con the cantillion effect affects uh, wages and how by going through these credit markets uh, people on like pensions and things like that are completely losing out in regards to uh, the buying of commodities and the purchasing power and things like that because we obviously we obviously see uh, particularly again bringing it back to modern monetary theory that people are really hell-bent on inflation and this is something that austrians have been accused of but it's not just austrians it's, it's everyone in the general population they're hell-bent on inflation and it's like 
like deflation is totally ignored. They're all hell bent on inflation. As soon as as soon as like commodity prices even start to rise in the CPI index, they cry out inflation. And it's like um, in regards to that, when it actually comes to inflation, with central banks creating more uh, more credit and asset prices are actually rising, it's the old and the laborers and the working class who lose it the most. It's, it's not your typical rich man. He, they get it through business loans. That's the that's the predominant form of new creation is to go into businesses to and stimulate industrial sectors, to stimulate production. Um, and then that's supposed to drive down to uh, to laborers and increase spending on the economy, which doesn't tend to happen. Savings just tend to increase. But um, as it as it is, people are so used to these lower interest rates, the liquidity preference or the liquidity trap itself is not is is now in negative bounds. It's not even at as Keynes emphasized in the, in the lower bounds. It's now like zero point seven. People won't. People won't will still keep their money at interest bearing at like see with the ECB it's zero point five uh, negative zero point five percent interest rates. It, it, that sort of uh, changes and these vast changes in monetary policy and what we come to is um as libertarians and how we then move on from this point is is has so much to do with in my opinion with Rothbardian populism and how Rothbard originally rejuvenated the Austrian school that. Um, I, I know a few people in VH don't like my Rothbardian populism aspects, but it seems to me that the best way to emphasize our economic ideas is through these very inflation purchasing power, um, price level type of type of arguments, uh, like money created out of thin air, all, all this type of stuff, and how the people like the, like the working class and how the people on pensions, how they lose out as compared to like the best big business guys, the cronies, the guys working with the government, and who is causing this because it's the central bank and the government yeah i mean if we look at what's worked for other people whether we like them or not and we use that uh, that method to our advantage like donald trump uh obviously populist movement very anti-war very anti-immigration uh, thing, things that people were very passionate about you know kind of anti-trade and he was really able to use that to his advantage uh, we could definitely do something similar obviously but changing it significantly because we're not trumpists but uh Oh, I, I agree. Uh, yeah, this is something I, we talked about in the last stream as well, like towards the end, I asked you guys what you what you thought the place of the libertarian movement within the Trump populist era was. And um, and, and that base, I think, can be can be taken because obviously the egalitarian lunacy and, uh, and education and the such has been taken to all new levels these days, like with the whole uh, increasingly uh, transgenderized and LGBT uh, propagandist that's going on. Like if you see like uh, street signs in London and things like this, it's, it's crazy levels of propaganda. And it's and it, it, the increasing acceptance of this is cl clearly driving conservatives to the back corner. They're thinking, well, who's going back here is clearly not the leftists. And because of all these stupid libertarians that are like, yeah, go LGBT, Black Lives Matter. And it's like, well, the conservative movement doesn't have a place in libertarianism anymore because of these left libertarians that are completely alienating them. Do we want to talk a little bit about, uh, um, I guess, I don't know, I want to say Hayek's strategy, but his view on like academia and spreading liberty? Uh, yeah, I, I guess that goes into Rothbard's as well um, in regards to like the state and the intellectuals and how Rothbard emphasized that um, intellectual capacities on a free market generally don't have the biggest of influences. They're not, generally don't expropriate so much funds, but under the state or whatever, like the the funds that can be expropriated merely from being propagandists is insane. Like all these politicians that are 
clearly not very bright in the head and they're clearly not making things better but we we don't have a choice anymore we just continue to let them expropriate us because we're so used to it that nobody even critically thinks about it anymore everyone is so used to having like 25 percent of their income deducted in fact it doesn't even show up now and that's one of the more harmful things that um employers now just automatically deducted that is not a good thing we should be able to see how much they are taking off of us we should be able to see how much they are stealing from us. Why should we not? Why should employers automatically do that for us? Why should we not be forced to confront the reality that we are being stolen from and expropriated from directly? Yeah. Yeah, I think we should probably wrap this up. We're probably nearing like uh, two hours and a half or something now. Oh my gosh. Definitely. <laughs> an hour and a half, two hours now, something like that. It's a, a structured kind of flow of conversation next time uh, where you are kind of still getting familiarized with this process so i it'll get better it was a rocky it was definitely a rocky start but let's be honest we didn't have a lot of prep time we just kind of had to throw everything together so yeah and constant improvement okay well let's just wrap this up here um thank you everybody for watching uh it's been a good discussion we've discussed a lot of topics uh we've covered a lot of history uh clearly well my brain is infused with history but um Uh, I hope you have enjoyed this episode and I hope you come back for more. Um, We're going to wrap this up here. Uh, Thank you all for watching.